This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. As a photographer, you never know where you're going to find a great photo story. Christina Salvador Clens found one on the side of a road. More than 30 years later, she has published her first photo book, Hidden. It's about that very subject she found on the side of the road in Portugal. We talk about her moving to America, finding her love for photography, and picking a college. I would always spend my lunch in the library, and one, one day I overheard somebody or two students talking about what they were going to do for college, and one person said, I'm going to go to the University of Missouri for photojournalism, and that... I never forgot that, and I thought, that's what I'm going to do. That person didn't end up going, but I went the next year. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from professional athletes, small business owners, and director of photography for the Americans, Max Wolfson. So I knew that each event I'd go to, I'd have to perform at the same level that they would have to perform. So I would would come back. They trusted me with their pictures. They trusted me, you know, when that button is, when, when I hit send, that photo was going out to the world with their name on it, not my name. However, I knew I played a big part in it. But for me, I realized that those relationships that I'd be building with them would hopefully lead me to a place where, you know, one day I'd feel comfortable enough to actually manage them. And I don't think there's any way I could have gotten to where I am today without starting where I did and building those relationships back in my early 20s where they saw how hard I worked and they knew that I put in the same amount of effort as them. The rest of my conversation with Max can be found on our archives at justagoodconversation.com. Let's take a quick break from my sponsor before diving into my conversation with Christina Salvador Clins. I am very excited because I've known my next guest for over 20 years, but I'm going to be speaking to Christina longer today than I probably have in the 20 years we've known each other. So true. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing great. How are you? I'm fantastic. When was the last time we saw each other? I think maybe Cal State Long Beach at a track meet. Do you remember? (laughs) Maybe. Uh, Yeah, I think that it was back then when I was working at the Press-Telegram. Right. Yeah, because I stopped working there in 2007, so I yeah. don't think I've seen you since then. Oh my goodness. What was the draw for you in everything you do? Like, I, 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 We're going to get to the book, because that's how I was like, when I saw the book on the Facebook, I was like, I got to have her on. It was stunning. It was Aww, beautiful. Thank you. Right. And I mean, I've said this a million times with other podcast guests I've had on, but the research when I do on my guests is the best part of the podcast. And so I feel like I know you more in the last week researching you mm-hmm. than sadly I've known in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh my God, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I did not know you were born and raised, or at least you grew up in Portugal. Yeah, I was born in Portugal and then we moved to the United States when I was three and a half or four. Okay. So what was the whole family was in Portugal and they decided we're coming to America. My, well, my dad got his residency at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And, um, so it was, he was just going to do his residency and we were going to go back. Okay. Um, that was the plan? Yes. Okay. Our whole extended family, both sides of my parents' family, um, all live in Porto and they've lived there for hundreds of years. 
um, we're the only people who ever left. Really? Yes. You're, and you're that group. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we left and we ended up, my parents ended up staying in the U.S. They decided to stay here. What made them fall in love with the fact that we'll stay? Uh, I just think back then Portugal was the third world country. There was a lot of illiteracy, a lot of poverty, and um, they had better opportunities here. Okay. So they decided to stay. We're staying. Mm -hmm. They're big Minnesota Viking fans, and they were just staying. <laughs> we stayed in Minnesota, and then we moved to St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. Yeah, and so I grew up in St. Louis from when I was 8 until I was 18. Do you remember much as a child in that move from Portugal to coming to America? Do you have any recollection? I do, because my grandmother, who I was really close to, and all my extended family, I, I left them all behind. So I do remember it was... It was pretty traumatic for me, and I missed them a lot, and especially my grandmother because I I lived with her, and um, she was kind of like a mother to me. Okay, um, mother's mother. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in a multi generational household. Okay. And so, grandma lived with you, grandma and grandpa, or how was that? We lived with them. Okay. Actually, yeah. Wow. We lived with them. Mm -hmm. Whereabouts in in, in Portugal? In Porto, yeah. it's in the north. Okay. Of, um, yeah, in the north, and we lived in the city, and um, highly dense populated area. Okay. Um, very old world, you know, still horses and donkeys on the street. Wow. Yeah, even when I would go back in the 1980s, there were still horses and... Um, really? Wow. Yeah. And, um, and I, we did go back... Often we went back during the Portuguese revolution. There was a revolution in 1976. We went back then. Now, why'd um, you guys go back for that? Uh, we went right after the revolution, oh. actually. And But I do remember being there for the elections. Um, How old were you then? Uh, I think I was maybe 14. But we went back when I was nine and we stayed a month. We went back when I was five. We went back when I was 12. So... Um, every time I went back, we arrived at the airport and there were at least 50 people waiting to greet us and we would have to go through the kissing machine. That's what we <laughs> called it. <laughs> oh, so, that's great. A lot of extended family. Did, did you know as a young teenager what the revolution was about? Yes, it was about um, the, there was a communist takeover okay. in 1976 and um was it discussed at like the kitchen table when you guys were here at, in America? Like your uh, dad sitting and go like, you'll never believe what's happening at home. He, well, my grandfather died as a result. He had a heart attack. Oh my goodness. Yeah. He was, uh, he was a business person and he, he lost a lot of, um, his money the stock market was nationalized. Um, and a lot of his friends were put in jail. Um, and so, yeah, we, we talked about it, and we went back for the elections, and I remember everybody trying to get all the people to go out and, and vote against the communists. So, um, and it, so Portugal, I think, at, back then became a social, demo, social democracy. Okay. So. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. Because at 14, like, you're old enough to know what's going mm -hmm. on, and you can have, like, some unbelievable visuals of, like, what would have been, like, were there banners and, like, 
police on the streets? Like, how was it visually for you? Um, there was a lot of graffiti. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, mostly graffiti uh, on the walls. I noticed that dif- that difference, and there was a lot more trash in the streets and vandalism at the time. But I don't have a really good memory. Um, I did see some of, uh, I did some research on it to see which photojournalist covered it. And um, Gilles Perez from Magnum covered it. So I do have some of his pictures. Okay. Um, there was uh, like a revolution in the square in Lisbon. And so he had some pictures from that. But other than that, I know there were people being arrested. Um, did it not get the world coverage in that late 70s that yeah, I maybe don't, other revolutions would have? Uh, probably not. Portugal, you know, hasn't really... Um, I, I think a lot of people skipped over Portugal when they would go on vacation. They would right. all go to Spain. Now it's becoming a popular tourist destination. A lot of people are going there, so people know more about the country. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's totally changed. Yeah. Right. And it's funny how what revolutions get covered and which ones don't. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it's just Portugal. Yeah. What do they have to offer? <laughs> now it's like, oh, we're going to Lisbon where everybody's going. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's a different. So were you, as that young child, feeling torn? Like, were you a Portuguese or were you feeling like you were an American? No, I definitely didn't feel American. I couldn't speak English when I went to kindergarten I don't think I spoke English and a lot of a lot of things I didn't understand a lot of things so um was it strictly Portuguese in the house spoken yes it was at first until the teachers told my parents that my English was so poor that they needed to stop speaking Portuguese and they stopped speaking and I lost the language oh yeah oh my goodness yeah so um yeah so and so that was hard. You know, that was it, adjusting to school was hard for right. me. Mm-hmm. It's funny because you have no accent. Like growing up in Minnesota, you, you don't have the O, right? You're mm-hmm. not doing And so you don't have this like distinct accent. Where, mm-hmm. Oh, she's from. You don't have that. Mm-hmm. So your English was is really clean. Right. I think because I learned it. I think it's before the age of seven. If you learn it after the age, a new language after the age of seven, then you'll get an accent. Right. But since I learned it maybe when I was five. Development stage. Yeah. yeah. So how was that? Was that, did that feel weird to you having to start learning a language as a little one? Do you remember that? Uh, I remember hiding under the um, dining room table when we had a, a babysitter for the first time and my mom teaching me how to say water and bathroom. <laughs> But other than that, I really don't remember. Yeah. Did you have brothers and sisters? Um, I had a younger a younger sister, and then my brother was born here okay. in Minnesota. All right, so you're the oldest, so you, mm-hmm. you didn't have anybody older to brother or sister to be like, no, no we're speaking, this is how we're speaking. <laughs> no, so you were leading the group. Yes. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Which is always harder. Right, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. They're breaking all the rules with you and trying mm-hmm. to figure it out. Yes. So your brother must have had it easy by the yes, time he, he was born here. He's like, oh, this is easy. <laughs> oh, my exactly. goodness. So how, okay, so tell me again, how long did you live in Minnesota until you went to St. Louis? Uh, five years. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then. Four wh- or five years. What was mm-hmm. what was the draw to, Min- uh, to St. Louis from Minnesota? That's where my um, dad got his first permanent job. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then. And he lived there for the rest of his life. Wow. But he would, 
he went back and forth to Portugal a lot. Okay. Yeah. How was that growing up in Missouri? St. Louis. If I had a choice, I probably would have preferred a bigger city to grow up in because I think I'm more of an adventurous person. All right. And and I I just prefer the city. Right. My mom moved to New York City when I was in college. So then I had that experience of living in New York City. I don't know that I would prefer to live in New York City, but maybe I would have loved California. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's somewhere in between. It's not, you know... Southern yeah. California is, it's not New York, but it's not the Midwest. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's spread out too. It's mm-hmm. a big city-ish California is yeah. or Southern California mm-hmm. where like if you're in Manhattan, you're just among 7 million people stacked on top of each other. Right. Like Porto, I think is a perfect city. Really? Because yes, because it's very, um, it's densely populated, but there's a lot of activity. People are always out walking around. Um, a lot of shops, and I love to go shopping. Isn't that a European thing, though? Yeah. You know, people getting out and shopping. Yes. Like, we we have to get in our cars and drive everywhere. Yes. And, yes, they go shopping every day for their food. Right. So. Yeah, we don't mm-hmm. do that. We stock up the refrigerator yes. from Costco and then just eat everything. Yes. Wow. So. How was growing up then in St. Louis, and when did you start getting little brothers and sisters behind you? So you're the leader of the, <laughs> of the um, troop. I I don't, you know, I went to three different elementary schools, and I guess for a child, it's a good place to grow up. You know, it's very stable. It's a stable environment. Right. And, um, you know, I enjoyed elementary school and, you know. When, When did you start to fall in love or find the camera? My, when we went to Portugal, oh, well, okay, first of all, in second grade, my mom showed me the family of man. The book okay. and I fell in love with that book and then when what I was, was the, what was the draw I think it was the picture of the baby being born okay and also there's a picture of a little girl looking in a coffin and she had a, her little mouse in there like she had created a little coffin okay. I don't know if you yeah. remember those yeah. for some reason those two pictures stuck with me interesting yeah I think that's how my mom taught me about the birds and the bees. She's like, here, look at the family of man. (laughs) This is what it's all about. A baby comes out, you end up as a mouse on a coffin. (laughs) And then um, when we went to Portugal, my godmother, and this was when I was in third grade, she got me a camera for Christmas. And I went with her to go buy it. And I don't know where she came up with the idea that I needed a camera but we bought, uh, she got me a little Agfa camera with a little ro- rotating um, flash cube on top. Right. And, um, and so then I, I took pictures and I started taking pictures then. Also, my, both of my parents also were hobbyists and, and took a lot of photos. What did she see? I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. That's such an unusual gift for a child. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So did you take right to it? Oh, yeah. I, re- I had, I don't know, I had seen my parents take pictures with their cameras. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why my uh, godmother would have thought that, but she she did. And I, I, I have my pictures that I took during that trip. I still you, have them. You mm-hmm. still have them? Yeah. 
Are they, what, black and white 110? No, actually they were color. And color. it was not 110, I forgot, 126? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the other format. Right. A little bigger. A little bigger, mm-hmm. but not 35. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. You kept those all these years. Yeah. And I, yeah, I have a little album with those pictures. And I took pictures of my grandma's house, of my grandparents, of the beach, you know. Just what, what a child would see in Snap. Yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. My brother and sister. When yeah. did you start to take to the camera? And then I always, ever since then, I, I always took pictures. And I would have my mom critique them for me and tell me, oh, okay, what could I have done better? You know, and she would tell me, like, your composition needs to be a little different. Or, <laughs> you know, and I remember being upset not if I didn't like the pictures. So like, your mom I was your first, first director of photography. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> She's sitting there with a red marker going, oh, child, what are you thinking? (laughs) Yeah, so she she helped me out. And my dad also, um, in in high school, I took photography. We had beginning photography, advanced photography, and then yearbook. So I was on the yearbook. And then one, uh, I would always spend my lunch in the library. And one one day I overheard somebody or two students talking about what they were going to do for college. And one person said, I'm going to go to the university of Missouri for photojournalism. And that I never forgot that. And I thought that's what I'm going to do. That person didn't end up going, but I went the next year. And it was just from that conversation, their conversation that I, it created awareness that there was a program, a photojournalism program. And that's um, why I ended up going to the University of Missouri. Wow, just from overhearing someone even just mention it. Yes, I did not know that right there, two hours away, there was a photojournalism program. And so as soon as I heard that, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Now, were newspapers in the house? Did mom and dad read the paper? Never. I had never even read a newspaper. So this (laughs) kid who you didn't even know had an interest in photography... (laughs) who over just is popping off and saying, I'm going to Missouri. You overhear it. You're like, I'm there. What are the chances that doesn't happen? You don't go to the library that day. You don't overhear that person. Like, I don't know. I I mean, it's possible that maybe later I would have known that, that there was a program. I have been thinking about that, (laughs) you know, um, and Missouri of all places, right? Yeah, I mean, that, it was only that, two hours away right. from St. Louis. Yeah, so. you don't live in South Dakota no, or Florida. If, if my parents hadn't chosen Missouri, I don't know if I would have become a photojournalist. You know, if they hadn't moved to St. Louis, it's kind of everything just fell into place. Right. Yeah. Those stars so was absolutely lucky. aligned. Mm-hmm. I was. I think it was my destiny, even though I'm. I don't. I'm not a big believer in <laughs> destiny. At that one, you are, though. I kind of am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you kind of got one foot in. Like, uh, for that one, I'm totally yeah. in on it. So what was the process like? Did you apply? Did you have to get a, you know, get into the journalism program? Do you remember you what that was like You do have to have you? a 3.0. At, at the time, you did have to have a 3.0. Okay. For the first two years. The first two years were liberal arts. You had to have a 3.0, and then you would apply. And as long as you had a 3.0, you were in. Okay. Yeah, so that part, yeah, that part was not too difficult, you know. How was your photography growing at that time? Were you interested in all kinds of aspects of photography? 
Um, you know, honestly, I didn't do much photography at that time. Um, I concentrated on getting that 3.0 and, you know, um, yeah, just get doing the studies that were required. And I don't think I, I had done the yearbook photography, so I did sports, I did football. Um, but other than that, I think those two years I didn't really do very much. Okay. And then once I got into journalism school, then I started, of course, doing more, you know, taking, uh, basic photography and we had, uh, a newspaper class where we shot for the newspaper, the daily paper, the Columbia, Missourian. You took the well to that immediately. Just, you felt Mm -hmm. like this was my thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Oh, also when I was calling, it's amazing. When I was in high school, my mom, she was going to college and she had a photography teacher who worked for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Larry mm-hmm. Williams. So I spent a day with him. Um, I got to shadow him for a whole day. Wow, what was that like? It was it was very different. And I remember thinking, I don't think I want to be a newspaper photographer because they take the pictures and then they go and process the film and it's all done very quickly. And I think I would like to spend more time on the photo shoot. Okay. But as I became a photojournalist, I loved having the deadline, doing everything quickly, going back and processing. So my whole outlook changed once I, I adapted to the schedule. Right. And yeah. working on that deadline becomes kind of a, an addictive, passionate thing. It does. Like, can I do it? Can I do it? Can mm-hmm. I do it? How far can I push this assignment? Yeah. How quickly can I get done in the dark room and get him that print? Yes. It's a game. Yes, it does. It's <laughs> Yes, and I always liked being a little bit late to the assignments because you get that adrenaline rush for being late, and then you're already pumped up to, sh- to do the shoot. So <laughs> we're so sick. Isn't it funny that way? <laughs> well, it also might be the Portuguese person in me who's always late to everything. Is that a Portuguese trait? Yes, I think so. They don't have watches on time. There. <laughs> I never heard of that in the uh, travel guide to go to Portugal. Things might be running 15 minutes behind schedule. Well, you know, they do. Well, they used to. I haven't been back in a long time. Um, but they would they close everything in the afternoon. So everybody could go home and eat lunch with their families so for two or three hours all the stores closed in the afternoon everybody would go home for lunch and then um all the stores would stay open later until nine o'clock okay you know yeah well Mm -hmm. that's your deadline challenge (laughs) (laughs) that's unbelievable so at missouri Mm -hmm. Being that, okay, it's a photojournalism school, was there ever anything else where you're like, maybe I like food, or maybe I like fashion, or maybe I like any other aspect of photography? Or was you were you completely committed, I am a photojournalist, I love this? Um, no, I was definitely committed to being a photojournalist. I, I liked food, but my dad used to take me to go and take pictures um, of nature and flowers, and I never... I never enjoyed that. Right. It never spoke to me. A landscape to you was just a landscape. Yeah. I liked psychology. That was the other thing that I liked. So if I had a choice between, uh, if I would have another major, it would be psychology. Interesting. Yeah. Because it's a study of behavior. And as, as photojournalists, that's what we do. We We observe people. We study behavior. We document it. 
And that's what a psychologist does. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just without a very expensive camera. Yes, just with a, note, a notepad <laughs> or a research study. <laughs> so what was those years at, at Missouri like? Were you like getting better? Can you see your growth as a, as a journalist? From like that first couple of years to when you left, um, was college that you know explosive for you and your creativity? I think that well, I remember my first year in journalism school. I met Eli Reed at he came because he I think he won photographer of the year or maybe magazine photographer of the year. Okay, and I loved his pictures. He was having a presentation, so. Afterwards, I went up and I talked to him and I brought him some of the Romani pictures I had taken in Portugal that the summer before. And we started talking and he got me an internship at Magnum for the next summer. And so I um, and I was also his assistant. I became his assistant for the summer. So that. That summer, um, I was at Magnum, and because my mom lived in New York City, I got to live, you know, stay in her apartment. And I would work at Magnum during the day in the office, but I got to look through everybody's contact sheets, like Cartier-Bresson. Um, he was my favorite to look through. I just did office filing, but every, and it was Monday through Thursday, and during my lunch hours and on my days off, I would look in the New York Times and I would find events and I would just go and cover them. Just and on your own? Yes. And that's how I built my portfolio. Um, I covered the New York City hotel strike. I covered um, protests at um, uh, the United Nations. Uh, I just would walk around. I got somebody being arrested, stealing a necklace out of the Trump Tower. <laughs> I, you know, documented homeless people. This um, what, mid-80s? It was 1984, or 85 maybe. Yeah, 1985. What a great time in mm, New York. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I did that, and I built my portfolio that way. And I used those pictures to apply for internships for, you know, the, when I from when I graduated. Right. Mm-hmm. So I... I know a lot of other students at the University of Missouri got newspaper internships, but I don't think I was I was there yet. I wasn't ready. I wasn't independent enough. You know, I didn't have a car. I couldn't navigate my way around a city, um, a large city. So I think that time in New York where um, I've always been kind of self-driven, um, I was able, I think I grew more as as a person, you know, as I was only, I think, 18, no, maybe 19 or 20. You were a kid. Yeah. And so, but I did that on my own. And um, That's big. Yeah, that collection helped me get internships. So, um, and also being around Eli Reed, too, was... Yeah, that's not a bad person to be around. (laughs) Yeah, he was very fascinating. And I remember he told me, you capture the moment when the person goes inside themselves. And that always stayed with me. And I'm like, that's the only time we really see a person is when they go inside themselves and they're no longer aware that you're there. Right. And, and that, um, 
really, it spoke to me and I, I carry that with me throughout my career. You know, you just have to be patient with people and eventually they will become who they are in your presence. Yeah. Did you feel like that time in New York, like, was that a huge stepping stone for you? Did you just like make a big difference and a jump in who you were as a photographer? Uh, yes, definitely. And mm-hmm. I had some hard years at the University of Missouri because I had three different teachers tell me that I would not make it as a journalist. Okay. One, I like to take pictures of children. And um, I guess maybe they would see that as an easy way out. If you had an assignment, you take a picture of a child. Right. It's, that's too easy. And, um, and I was not a good writer. So the, the writing teacher told me that I would never make it as a journalist because I was a very bad writer and that I would, um, you have to know how to write to be a photojournalist. So (laughs) yes, there were three people and that really, it really upset me, but, um, did it push uh, you? Did it light a fire under your ass? (laughs) <laughs> no, I think I always had that fire. Okay. And I just, inside me, I, I said you, to myself, I just, I was thinking, you don't really know what you're talking about and you're judging me um, based on, on what you see, but not on what, who I really am. Okay. So um, I, I did, you know, take their word, word to heart, but I still always loved children and I don't think I was taking an easy way out. I just love children. And um, and there are a lot of people today who make a living photographing children. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and I just thought to myself that that's kind of a narrow way to view the world or to tell somebody that. Why discourage them and tell them you're going to end up just in a small town because of what you choose to photograph. Right. Well, I mean, you know this now. You look back at mm-hmm. it with all your battle scars as a photojournalist. They they were looking at it strictly from the hardcore photojournalism world of like, why aren't you photographing somebody with a heroin addiction, right? Exactly. Living out of a van down by the river. And it's like, well, there's a lot of different layers to what I can actually photograph. Mm-hmm. But they're at a place at Missouri that was really trying to make world-class photojournalists with a formula. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I was ready... For the heroin addicts. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes that's, you're just not ready for that. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. And I think. Um, it's a difficult situation to put yourself mm-hmm. into that world where Eugene and all those people, you see their work and you're like, oh, God, that looks so easy for them. Well, they've been doing it for 30, 40 years. Yes. Right. Yeah. If you're a 19, 20 year old girl. Yeah. You're, you weren't ready for that mm-hmm. hard edge. Right. And if you've got a natural pull to a child right mm-hmm. you probably had a massive family mm-hmm. so being around kids for you and children babies was very natural yes it was and um and I also my first job was a gymnastics instructor so oh, you, you know that's what I did I taught children how to do gymnastics so were you a gymnast yes oh. <laughs> yeah you missed that part <laughs> yeah I forgot all about that yes I was what in high school I was um I think starting in middle school or, you know, junior high, I was in a club. Okay. So, yeah, gymnastics was my, actually my first 
passion. And I would take pictures of, I, I documented all our meets, our, um, all the children that, you know, were in our club. And so I have pictures of all them. I documented it in black and white. So that was another way that I did photography too. What was your favorite event? Bars. <laughs> what was the last time you were on the bars? Uh, we don't want it. I don't know. <laughs> if, if we had bars right now, could you take a swing at it? I could, but it probably wouldn't be good for my back. But I still do have a lot of upper body strength. That's good. Yeah, it's carried me through. You know, I think that helped me with carrying all the camera equipment. Right. You know, I had a lot of upper body strength, so. Right. Boy, I tell you, I, when Cal State Fullerton had mm -hmm. gymnastics there, I was always fascinated by the female gymnasts because they were rocks. They yeah. were strong. Yeah. And yeah. They and were I was, not, yeah, they were not petite and like mm -hmm. little. They were tough girls. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. And I, you do have to. I be, wouldn't do that. There's no way you run my ass down and hit a pommel horse or a vault. No, the vault and yeah. fly off it. No way. Yeah. I loved it. I was, uh, I would work out like four hours a day. Yeah. And I would, I loved gymnastics. So. See, but that's interesting that that carried over. Cause you know, people don't realize that probably that strap mark you had from that donkey, you know, bag you carried all the time uh -huh. and that other camera around your neck. Like, yeah, that probably paid off and kept your shoulders were strong yeah. and your neck and everything. And they still are. Yeah. And I can still do, you know, push ups now and I feel like I'm still strong. You're you a know? badass mom. <laughs> <laughs> you might be the first mom on the podcast who can do push-ups right now. That's too funny. Afterwards, we'll, we'll do 10 and we'll okay. just warm up. I have to use those bars, though. Yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that even better? Is that it's like because they... I had carpal tunnels, oh. so I can no longer put pressure on my, on my wrists. Oh, I just thought from your Navy SEAL days, you were just... <laughs> oh, yeah, climbing up those battleships. You know, I had to do that for the pre the battleship, the ropes. Right. That we had. I don't know if you ever had to do that. Did no. you ever have to climb up the side of a battleship? No, I haven't yet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> see how the career ends. Jesus. Oh, or rep I repelled off a building too for the press telegram, with a uh, some assignment with the army, and yeah. so I did repel off a five story building. How was that? It was fun. The only part that's scary is putting placing your feet. Uh, you have to put your heels on the outside of the platform of mm -hmm. the, the roof uh -huh. and let your body fall backwards. Right. That part was scary. The rest was fun. <laughs> because you're... The trust. Yeah. 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 You actually have to let your body go backwards. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I'm guessing you did this before you were a mother? Yes. <laughs> 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 yeah, pre-mom jeans. You're like, let's go for it. Falling <laughs> off a building. Now you'd be like, hell no, I got kids. I got to exactly. keep Exactly. <laughs> yeah, everything changes when you have kids. Yeah. So when you're leaving Missouri, did you have a plan? Oh, okay. So when, oh, and this is another kind of strange thing that happened. Um, so when I was about to graduate, I didn't have a plan, okay. but I was applying for internships and I had never had an internship other than my um, office okay. job at Magnum. Uh, I was sitting at a typewriter typing out my resume and Len Lehman, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He was, he was teaching there for a semester and I think he worked at the San Jose Mercury News. Okay. Um, he saw me type my name. And he saw that my last name was Salvador. And he said, 
I think I can get you an internship um, at the Detroit Free Press because they are looking for a minority intern. And okay, so he had me send my work to Detroit, and I got the internship. And wow, yeah, and so I ended up being an intern that summer at the Detroit Free Press. And um, summer internships are the best. Yes. And uh, I remember my dad dropping. Well, we drove to Detroit together. My dad dropped me off there and I started crying (laughs) because, you know, my apartment that I subletted was in downtown Detroit. And the next day I went to the Detroit Free Press and a veteran photographer looked at me. Um, and he said, who are you? And I said, I'm the intern. And he just looked at me and started laughing. (laughs) (laughs) And so I started, that's how I started my career. I started there in in Detroit. (laughs) So like, who was the photographer that thought William Archie? (laughs) What did he just thought? Oh my God, young lady, uh-huh. this is going to eat you alive. Yes, and I, did you have a look of fear on you? No, I didn't <laughs> understand what he was saying. I'm like You're adorable. <laughs> You're absolutely adorable. I was wearing like you know I was a kid and I was wearing you know what I wore in college my sweat tight sweatpants. It was the 80s. Yeah, it was the 80s. And my long baggy T-shirt, probably with Minnie Mouse on it. And <laughs> it wasn't wham. <laughs> and he just looked at me and he's, he just laughed. And, and they, they sent me all over the place. They would just say, okay, you need to go find uh, a teacher who's retiring and go do a story on her for the back pages. They had a photo page um, every single day on the back, on the, in the back section of the newspaper. So they would just send me all over. They sent me to Charlevoix, all over Michigan to cover yacht races. Did you have a company car? No. Oh, so you had your car. I had my little, okay. yeah, my little Volkswagen Golf. <laughs> and, and at the end, and they actually extended my internship at the end because I didn't have anywhere else to go after that. Um, and so they, yeah, they extended my internship. And then at the end they said, we didn't think you were going to make it, but you did pretty good. <laughs> did you feel, okay, so did they support you? Did you get a lot of, like, photo editors looking at your work and, and working through things through with you? No. Everybody there edited their own film. Whoa. Yeah. No one, I don't think anyone ever edited my film. Wow. Yeah. I edited everything myself. Um, they had, we printed our own black and white, but for color, they um, they had lab techs who printed the color. Okay. Yeah, and processed the color. And we did all our own black and white. And Tony Spina was there, and he was super supportive of me. And when I left, he gave me a huge box of Tri-X. He also told me that um, he helped me adjust my camera strap because I wore it too long. <laughs> and then he also tried to make me a right-eyed shooter because I'm a left-eyed shooter. Okay. And he said, that's going to be dangerous for you. You have to switch to your right eye, but I could never do it. Why did he feel it was dangerous? Because when you're shooting with your left eye, your ca- the camera blocks your right eye. Okay, yeah. And and I do have a battle scar here 
Right. Because I did get hit and I got stitches, you right. know, when I was in college. Yeah. I got hit by a wide receiver. Yeah, but that's all right. <laughs> Those are the battle scars. So, yeah. So then from there, I went to the Marietta Times in Ohio. I drove. Internship? Yeah, another internship. Okay. And I stayed there from, I think, September or August until March. Okay. Yeah. And they extended that internship, too. Because I had nowhere to go. I mean, at the time, mm-hmm. did you realize it? Like when you're in New York doing that internship and in Detroit, uh-huh. now at Ohio, like how good you had it? Uh, like, I mean, it's hard. It's easy now to say, oh, did you appreciate it? But like, like today, there's no internship programs for these oh, kids. I didn't know up. that. Yeah. Mm. Like, well, Prestelogram, they had internships. Yeah, none. we had lots of internships. Right. LA yeah. Times, none. Register, none. Like you uh-huh. start, to, you know, we start to go through the list of newspapers. Yeah, they're smaller. Mm-hmm. They've cut internships. Mm-hmm. So where do these kids get that? New York, you know. Yeah. Maybe you didn't shoot in New York, but you know, sitting there and looking at those negs of mm-hmm. other people's works and those that 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 was huge growth for you. Yes. To see, oh, why did he do that? And he did this, especially. When you're looking at a contact sheet and you can see what they did frame to frame. Yes. It's one thing if I give you 20 photos of someone's work. Mm-hmm. But if you see their process in that contact sheet, oh, that's huge for a young photographer. Yes, it was really valuable. And they had shelves and shelves of binders. Right. And then doing that in Detroit and then out Ohio, like, mm-hmm. were you just like eating it up? Were you taking it or were you kind of still like, what am I doing? I'm a fish out of water. Did you, did, were you, which way were you going? I just wanted to get the best pictures I could. Okay. I think um, I was looking for beautiful light, and I just I wanted to, like, get magnificent pictures. And I, um, I, don't, I, I don't feel like I was lost. I've, you know, I was just happy that I had an internship and, right. um, you know, I loved working in the dark room, so... But I remember in Detroit, I was exhausted. Like, my my first day off every week, I would sleep the entire day. Really? Yeah, it was very exhausting. It was... Did you work yourself hard, or they work you? And I think they worked me hard. <laughs> right. Yeah. And sometimes that's the best, too. Yeah. To keep you busy, keep you shooting, mm-hmm. so you don't get into trouble, and you're, you know, you're there to work. Yeah. Yeah, they worked probably three assignments a day and lots of driving. And we, you know, there was there was not a map. I, I got lost a lot. I wasn't a very good driver. I got into some car accidents. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't man. understand some of the deadlines that I would, like, people, they didn't always communicate with me. You need to drop off your film. Things like that happen, and there was no way to communicate with them, and I had no map, and there was a, a big map on the wall, and I would just have to write down where I was going and copy it, and then I would get lost. There Detroit, was no Thomas guide or anything? No. You would just look at the map on the wall in the photo lab, and Detroit is like a wheel with spokes. Yeah. It's very. It's not like L.A. L.A.'s easy to navigate, and so is Long Beach, right. but Detroit was not. And neither were any of those other small towns I lived in where you'd have to drive out in the country. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 45 minutes and there was nothing between. No, they'd say turn left at the fork in the road. And they really meant it. Yeah. And uh, in Detroit, I was driving 
to Ann Arbor a lot to cover things. So they, you know. That's far. For people who don't understand, that's a far drive from Michigan to Ann Arbor. Yeah. And and so, yes, they did work me really hard, and I, I was exhausted. So you slept mm-hmm. like a baby on your days off. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did. I slept the whole entire day. And then I'd wake up in the evening and have something to eat. <laughs> uh, so how was Ohio for you? It was the complete opposite. It was um, on the border of West Virginia, and it was more, um, it was very rural. Okay. Yeah, there was not even a mall in the town that I worked in. Yeah. But I also got a lot of great pictures there. In fact, one of them, like that right there. I don't know if you can see see that one. I did the same thing. What was the difference? What was the difference photographically between Detroit and Ohio? Was it just a ruralness? I think so. Because they also worked me very hard there, too. Because I worked five days a week, uh, double shifts. Double shifts? Yes, because I was the intern. They would pay me overtime. but um, Ooh, girl was making money. (laughs) $150 a week. And I then know. I got the overtime. Wasn't it crazy what we got paid, but we did it. We loved yeah. it. We're and, addicted. Yeah. And I would just explore on my own. I have a whole closet full of books, one for every city that I lived in. And I would just go out and take pictures on my own. Like, um, I had to do a lot of wild art, but then I would on my days off also go to like small towns and just document the towns. Wow. So, mm-hmm. um, when Ohio is ending, when they extended it, but it's, is it ending? What's your plan? I didn't have one. So I, I started applying for jobs, um, and then I got a job in Auburn, New York. Okay. Somebody from the University of Missouri, another photographer, um, was the photo editor there at the Auburn Citizen. So I ended up there. How was that? And that was also another small town. Yeah, that's kind of how we all started out. Yeah. Little small towns, you get to a medium yeah. town, and then kind of small big town, mm-hmm. and then you hope to get to the biggest town. Yeah, and then after that, I um, I moved to Rochester, New York, and um, that's where I met Davis Barber. Okay. So Davis was the photo editor there for, I think, about a year, and he left and came to California came back to California because he was from the Daily Breeze. Mm -hmm. And he's the one who told me about the opening at the Press-Telegram. So that's how I ended up here in Long Beach. That's crazy. That's that's how it used to be for us, that we know somebody that knows somebody and a photo editor, like the the NPPA job banker, finding it, you know, today is so easy. But back then, you had to know somebody who knew somebody Exactly. And they would tell you, oh, yeah, Christina, there's a place in Virginia Beach or mm-hmm. there's a place in Montana. You know, if, yeah. you, if you don't, Davis doesn't go or doesn't know. Yeah. And you're still in upstate New York. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, and uh, yeah, I'm shocked. I got to, I got the job. Yeah. And that's, and, a big, were, and that's a big jump from New York to coming out to California. Yes. And I, I was going to be so sad if I didn't get the job because I didn't want to stay in Rochester anymore. You wanted out? Yeah. How it long was, have you been there for at that point? I think I had only been there for a couple of years. Okay. But it's very cold. Yeah. But the light was beautiful. 
See, your face just lit up. Yeah. The cold you didn't like, but your face lit up when you said light. The light. It was beautiful. It's like a giant softbox every day. When I came to California, I was disappointed with the light. (laughs) I was thinking, how am I going to take pictures in these harsh shadows? (laughs) I don't work from 11 to 4.30. Oh, my God. Yeah, right? All of a Uh sudden... You know, that's what we do. We're manipulating of light. And you looked at it and you're like, oh, this is not for me. Yeah. The light is is so different. So dramatically hard and different. It is. Contrasty and and sharp and hard. Yeah. And I was thinking, and even when I was doing my Romani photos, so many pictures were were ruined because they were outside. They had these amazing events, but it's harsh shadows. At noon. Yes. Right. Or inside. Right. Um, at night. Worse. Just yes. brutal. Yeah. And so so I think that's one of the reasons the project took so long is the lighting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you come out to California. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you? How much of a cultural change and, you know, the PT and how they operated? That That's 1990, right? Uh, yeah, 1989. Okay. Um, I love the PT because... I knew so many people already from college. I didn't even know they were here. <laughs> they didn't tell you. No. Hal Wells was here. I knew him from college. Lynn Butterworth. I knew her. She let me stay in her apartment while I was trying to find a place to live. Um, and then Bruce Chambers was the photo editor at the time. Mm-hmm. Everything was very fair. Um, we, we got our assignments based on our schedule. Right. And, and even though I was new, they still gave me the hard assignments. So, and you were in that big, beautiful building downtown. Yes. Long Beach was gritty. Yeah. I loved it. Right. It wasn't as polished as, you know, now with the Pike place. It was still Mm -hmm. rough town. Yeah. And Leo, Leo Hetzel helped me so much, you know, so, um, I did the, I came out here for an interview. I stayed on the Queen Mary. Really? That's where they put you up? Uh-huh. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> and then, um, and then after. That's a great move on their part. Yeah, they did. They put me in. And I was so ha- grateful and happy to get the job. Yeah. And, and there were so many um, different cultures here in Long Beach. I got to work on a Cambodian project. And, you know, I did a lot of wild art, which is my favorite thing to do. Is just to find pictures. Did you drive out from Rochester out to L.A.? I negotiated with them, and they said that I could pay for my plane ticket, but that they would put my car in the moving van, okay. and they moved my car and my stuff out here. All right. So I didn't have to drive. Look at you negotiating. <laughs> yeah. Lady knows how to do it. Yeah, that's because so, otherwise there's four, four or five days of driving on your own. It is, and it was winter, and I didn't want to drive in the winter. I didn't want to drive across the country because I had so many, uh, so many negative uh, driving experiences. Yeah, for your face, said you know. It all. Oh my God! One time I had to drive up this mountain in Charleston, West Virginia, and it was it was just the weather was so bad. By the time I got up there, because I was going to the interview in Auburn from <clears throat> from Marietta. I stepped out of the car and there was like a foot and a half of slush. And on my way there on the freeway, there were cars like spun around all in different directions. And 
and I had so many car accidents. I just never you, wanted. <laughs> your face still shows the scars. <laughs> You're traumatized. Yes. PTSD from driving. Yes. Driving at night one time, driving back from that airport back to Marietta. It took me about four hours when it should have taken two. But it was so scary. I just drove behind a truck the whole time. Super slow. Just wanted to stay behind that truck and let him clear out the snow and you yeah. just follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was scary. So well, thank God you got the moving truck, you know, and yeah. to take the car. Otherwise you might've ended up God knows where I know you'd have gotten I'm, lost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Wyoming. Where the hell is the press telegram? Exactly. <laughs> I did not want to drive. Yeah. That's good. So, so, so yes. Were, were those ear, early years for you at the press telegram? Again, a growth. In your photography, were you feeling like you were moving up the rung of getting better, getting better the way you saw? Yes, definitely, because I had a lot more um, mentorship here. Okay. Yeah, most at most of the places I worked, um, I enjoyed getting to edit my own film. In Rochester, we are everybody edited our film for us, and I was not used to that. I didn't like that. Why? What bothered you about that? I don't know. I just lost of control. Someone else picking what they thought was a good photo. I think because my vision of a good photo did not necessarily blend with what was like the standard for photojournalism, Mm -hmm. where photojournalism in general tells a story. Each frame needs to tell a story. I think I was more of a documentary photographer and it, my picture didn't necessarily have to tell a story, but it was a beautiful moment. And I think that's where maybe I had a conflict and, and I understand from the editor's viewpoint, it needs to tell a story and it needs to be the story of the story. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Whereas I wanted my picture, the one that I love to be published in the paper. And so I was not very realistic, but, um, but at least at the press telegram, I, I had a lot of mentorship and there was always a give and take in, okay. in the way the film was edited. Okay. And there were so many amazing photographers around me that I learned from them. Right. Mm-hmm. That does help. Yes. Right. You mm-hmm. see what they do. They, they rub off on mm-hmm. you and there's dark room talk, which mm-hmm. I think is an absolute lost yes. thing. Sitting in that dark room with somebody and just bantering yes and learning right and why did you do that why oh you used the flash you didn't mm-hmm. use the flash why mm-hmm. that lens why this why that like yeah and and watching dark. other people print yes like bruce chambers watching him print he's a master printer oh my gosh yeah. i would just watch him print and i learned a lot mm-hmm. yeah and so. that sounds silly but there's so many phases to photography that's not happening anymore but like you could take a great picture and screw it up in the dark room mm-hmm or you can save it in the dark room. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I can close my eyes right now and I just can go right back there and love that red light in that dark room. And it was a different world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's a small group of people who are left that can still print. Yeah. Very small. You, you know, can get them in here in your room. We, we printed every single day, all day. I mean, how many people have that experience? Very few. Yeah. Very few. So... When at the press telegram, were you feeling like I'm going to stay or were you ever again thinking like I want to go somewhere else? No, I wanted to stay. 
would you would you fall in love with? The area, the the paper, the uh, uh, everything, the area, the the photographers I worked with, um, the beautiful scenery in California. There's so much to do. It's so cultural. Did you get used to the, the harsh light. I did. <laughs> Your face lit up again. <laughs> I'm still not used to it. I still wish that we could bring the light from Rochester, New York, and just put it here. <laughs> you just want some clouds. Yes. Yeah, just some clouds. Just kind of yeah. take off the harsh, the harsh exactly. edge. That's it. Even in, in Portugal, there's there's beautiful light. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. We don't have clouds, and clouds really can take an image and change it just a little bit. They not, can make it perfect. Yeah, Mm-hmm. Either in just being in the background or taking that hard edge off of the shadows. Yes. Right. But we're just like a spotlight all the time. Exactly. Even in January. Yes. And I feel like it's getting worse. We're getting know? older. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So you were staying. You were going to be a PT girl through and through. Mm-hmm. You and, and I stayed for 18 years. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. you didn't go. Yeah. And I, I, I stayed through the whole transition of uh, Singleton. Many, many yes. transitions. My God. Mm-hmm. Like that. You, you saw a lot in those mm-hmm. 18 years. Yeah. Were you ever worried at some point when things started to shrink in size? Well, okay. So I stayed. I worked full time for four years. And then I did leave the press telegram to work full time on my Romani um, story. Mm-hmm. But then I went back part-time. Okay. So by the time I went back part-time, I was, I was already freelancing and I had a lot of clients. So that when Singleton took over the paper and cut everybody's pay, the press telegram was not my only source of income. Oh, good. Thank I God. had multiple sources of income. And so I was never worried. It's good, safe. Yeah. And, um, and then I was also doing weddings, shooting weddings and... So and I wasn't worried. I was able to stay while a lot of other people had to leave. What, was there any, like, um, from your time, like, at Detroit and Ohio, by the time you come out here to Long Beach, how did you approach assignments? Did you approach them anything different? Or was there a learning as you were getting older and getting, like, your years in mm-hmm. and the way you worked? Did you approach an assignment differently or a subject differently? Or were you pretty much kind of getting to be set in your ways by the time like you're in your 30s and you kind of feel like, okay, I've gotten 10 years in of photojournalism. Mm-hmm. I kind of know what I'm doing. Um, because the, the Roman story, and we'll dive into that, I mean, that was a huge spanding story mm-hmm. for you. So the time you're, you're, the way you shot it in the beginning and the way you're still shooting it now, like, was it different? Did you approach it differently? During, um, cause I'm a uh, process guy. I love to know people's processes and like, you know, you, are you growing through mm-hmm. stages and some people kind of get stale and slow and they don't realize it. Like, wow, I kind of shoot the same way every time. Mm-hmm. Were you aware of your approach or were you cognizant of like, I got to keep evolving? I think, um, during, um, my Roma story, it did change my dad sent me his old Leica rangefinder, and I think that's when I started to see in a different way. Okay. And I think I just really took to the Leica. It it just really spoke to me. Um, 
I loved using the rangefinder. Um, what was it? What was that camera? What about it? Did it, you know, it touched your soul? Made you like, ah, oh, I see things differently. Well, one thing was because I, he's the he sent me. Well, it had one lens, a fifty millimeter lens. Right. So, just even having that lens changed it. Changed it. Okay. Um, and then I bought a thirty five millimeter. So I had a Leica M6 and a Leica M3. And so I used both of those. I I felt like I was less obtrusive and and nobody would take me seriously because the camera was so small, nobody knew its value. Mm-hmm. It was quiet and it just I think being a left-eyed shooter, it just it it just fit my it fit my body better because it was small. And I don't know, there was just, I can't really explain why it was different, but I think that that changed my shooting a little bit, Okay. having that, rather than a 28 and a, or 35 on my camera all the time. Right. You know. Hanging off you. Yeah, so, yeah, I was able even to get closer, I think, maybe a little bit closer to people. Because it was small, mm-hmm. less intrusive. Yeah. Yeah, you didn't have this big giant black box in front of your face. Exactly. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe I was able to see more around me. Yeah, I mean, th- we we forget. I mean, what were you probably shooting with normally back then? FM three or F four? Yeah, it was I had an F four and right. an F three. Mm-hmm. So I mean, those are big compared to a yeah. small Leica. So if you pull those out or just have those on your shoulders, it's not intrusive. It's not frightening. No. Right. So you could just pull those up and. Click, make mm-hmm. small noise. I love the little, the, the noise of the Leica too. Right. And nobody really heard it. Right. It was quiet. Yeah. It wasn't, wasn't a big slap. Exactly. That giant mirror. Mm-hmm. So let's start, let's dive into that project because obviously the book and everything, but how do you find that? Where's this project? Where's its genesis? Where does it start well, for it, you? It started in Portugal, um, when I was, my grandmother and I were taking a little day trip from Porto um, to another town called Braga. What year is this? 1984. Okay. And um, we were, we drove, we were on our day trip and I saw some people on the side of the road, like in a, a camp of people. And I asked my grandmother, I said, why are those people on the side of the road? And they're cooking and looks like they're living there and they had shacks and she said those are ciganush and i said i want to go and and meet them and she she looked at me like no i don't think that's a good idea and i said yeah i really want to and she said okay well maybe on our way back so on our way back we passed because they were on the opposite side of the road so on our way back we passed them and we stopped and my great aunt was with us too, and, and they were both a little bit worried about me going up and approaching the people. Obviously, we didn't know them. <laughs> and But all I could see were these children, and they had some goats, and they had these big silver pots, and they were cooking. And, I, of course, I had my camera with me, and I just thought, wow, this would be amazing amazing pictures I was still a college student so so I I went up to them and the all the children ran at me and um and they were so exuberant and vibrant and they actually were so radiant 
you know, their faces were glowing. There was just something so special about them. And so I got, I took pictures of them and I got the film processed somewhere in Porto and then the little prints. And then I, we went back and took them, took the pictures to them. And I brought some, I brought them some old, some toys that I had from when I was a kid. And I think I baked them a cake and <laughs> you're like kind of becoming an aunt. <laughs> random, like, <laughs> and I brought the kids nail polish. I was like, did you nurse anybody too? Like you're <laughs> doing just about everything. <laughs> and then I took more pictures and, um, but I noticed they didn't care about the toys. They just threw them on the ground and the nail polish they threw on the ground. And it, it was so interesting. And, um, and then I took more pictures and then we went back the very last time. The second time I went, the lighting wasn't very good. So those pictures weren't as good. But the third time I went, the lighting was beautiful. And that was the last time I went there. I took the film to a lab in New York City and somehow they put it in a C41 envelope and they thought it was bulk loaded Agfa film and they ruined the film. Oh. And I just remember like crying the whole way back on the bus that I because they had ruined my film and I though I knew those pictures were going to be amazing. How did they do that? Yeah, they they told me, "Well, we thought it was bulk loaded black and white film and they had put it in the wrong envelope and they processed it with C41. Oh. So that was, you know, definitely traumatizing for me. Yeah. And, and since, and that camp moved, my grandma told me, Oh, your, your Ciganuj, they moved there. They went back to Spain. They're not there anymore. But the next time I went back, um, she had found me a different, a different camp in a different city. And so I, um, I went to that camp probably maybe four, three or four times every time I went back to Portugal, but I only got to go one time. I didn't know how to drive in Portugal and the drivers are a little bit, um, they have the worst drivers in all of Europe. <laughs> That's saying a lot. <laughs> same side as the road as us or opposite? Yes, same okay. side. But still just Yeah, I didn't know why. Mm -hmm. So I was only able to go maybe one or two times every time I went to Portugal. So um, whenever my family would take me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so wow. I still wasn't like a super independent person, you know. And so, um, but I did... And I wouldn't stay very long because I had my family members waiting in the car. Sure, right. You can't spend four hours. No, or... it's not like they would drop me off and come back and get me. So, um, of course, which I would have loved, and I would have loved to just, like, spend the night there. Right. But, um, so anyway, when I, all those years that I had been visiting the camps in Portugal, I had been looking for camps in the Midwest. Like, why are there no camps here with, with Romanese? And I didn't realize that they lived in houses. And it wasn't until I moved to California and I met Leo Hetzel, who also had photographed um, a lot of Romani people because he um, lived in Spain and he had um, um, lived with Romanis. He purchased a cave and I forgot what the city is called. He purchased a cave? Yes, and that's where in... Um, in Spain, a lot of Romanis live in caves. They're like homes, but they're built into caves. And so Leo had done 
um, for the Press-Telegram had done a story on Romanese living here in Long Beach. Okay. So he's the one who helped me find the Romani families. He could tell where Romani families lived. He would see them outside their apartments. Um, he could tell by their clothing, their shoes. So explain to me, who are they and where they come from? They are a group of people who came from India okay. about a thousand years ago from the northern um, Punjab region of India. Okay. Their language is um, is from ancient Sanskrit. It sounds a lot like Punjabi. Okay. And they've kept that language um, all these years since they've left India. It's It has um, other languages m- blended in, but it really is mostly um, an Indic language. Right. And now they get confused kind of like being gypsies or gypsies, right? Kind of. Um, well, I think that is a pejorative term that they used to be called. Right. And it's now, an easy catch, like, oh, they're just gypsies, but yes. they're not. No, they ha- They don't. I think, you know, outsiders have given them that name, mm-hmm. but um, they don't call themselves that. I mean, uh, of course, they call do call, I mean, it's hard to say. They call themselves that because we call them that. Right. So, um, and they do use that term still. But really, they call themselves Hom or Homa. So, um, and that's what they call their culture. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, why are they, why in Long Beach, are, is there a community? It's just there, kind of where they've kind of. There used to be, um, but there really is no longer. Okay. Most of the people that I photographed have left, and they've moved um, to either Northern California or to out of state. Okay. Um, just economic reasons? Economic reasons. Also, the Northridge earthquake. Um, uh, I think that drove a lot of people out. Interesting. Mm-hmm. My, uh, I had a, a Chilean Romani family that I photographed a lot. And okay. the mom wanted to leave because she grew up in Chile. And there, she, it, she had PTSD from the earthquakes. Right. They've got massive earthquakes. Yes. And right. she did not want to stay here. So they, their family moved to Phoenix 30 years ago. Oh. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons that I, I stopped the project is because everybody started moving away. Right. You got no subjects. Yeah. They moved and the children would call me. But once they started moving out of state, then um, they... Uh, I, I didn't keep in touch with them anymore. What was the draw to you, to them? Hmm. I think there were many different levels of why I was drawn to them. But I think in the end, the main reason is because they became my extended family. The okay. family that I left behind in Portugal, I got through the Romanese. And even though they weren't my family... The feelings were the same. I had, I, I w- and I would go and shoot and I would tell myself, these are not, this is not your family, but this is as close as you're ever going to get to having this giant extended family. And then also I was drawn to their personalities there. You know, how could you not be drawn to people who wear their emotions on their sleeves? all their emotions they are just true humans they they didn't hide anything and um it is ironic that the book is called hidden but the romani people don't hide their emotions they their anger their laughter 
their frustration. They show everything and, um, and their love and, and care for each other. You know, I was drawn to that too. You know, I'd see the grandfathers brushing the children's hair and, um, and also their culture. Their culture was originally what drew me. I wanted to document their traditions, but as I got more into the project, I was more interested in the relationships between the people. Mm -hmm. Was, was there ever like a language barrier for you and Um, and your subjects at that time when you first started? Um, well, I photographed, I think, four main different groups. There was a language barrier. There would have been between the Jorajai, because those were the group that came from Chile. Um, They spoke Spanish, so I was able to understand them, and I communicated with them through Spanish. Okay. Um, So, no, there wasn't. I mean, there was a language barrier because I didn't know what they were saying most of the time when they spoke to each other. Okay. But um, for me to communicate with them, no, because everybody spoke either English or Spanish. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you were fine on that level. Yes. Mm -hmm. So how did you approach them and say, you know, like, oh, I'd love to spend the day and photograph you or this party or this event. What was your approach to get in? Well, the first thing, okay, so Leo found one family for me. and, um, And I brought my pictures of the um the romany people that i photographed in portugal and i would take those with me and i would show i showed it to the family and they let me photograph the children but i was not allowed to photograph the adults interesting you would think (laughs) it'd be the opposite don't photograph my children yeah no they the children were fine the adults were not okay why do you think that was they were hiding yeah embarrassment maybe yeah i'm not I'm not really sure. I could not figure that out. So I had that one family and I would periodically go and visit them maybe two or three times. And then they moved. I, um, I went there, I saw them moving. I saw the women moving, lifting, doing all the heavy lifting of the furniture. And I wanted to take that picture, but I wasn't allowed to. There were so many times that I wanted to take pictures and I wasn't allowed to, but yeah, you have that boundary with your subject. Sometimes like you're, you're like, Oh God, I, I just want to take this so bad. I know. <laughs> would, like if you looked back now, would you break it or would you still keep that bond or, or no, tr- I wouldn't break it because breaking that, that bond, the word would get around, you know, okay. you, you have to build that trust and, if you break that trust one time, people will know. So I don't think I ever broke the trust. Okay. And I think that's what allowed me to continue the project. I was very mindful of never breaking the trust and always keeping my word. Okay. So um, then I found, I had a photo assignment at a church and I noticed they had, it said, uh, God's Gypsy american gypsy church and so and it was in long beach um kind of like on temple and fourth there's a church there big church so i went to the church i asked the pastor and i said can i go to this gypsy church that you're having and um he said yeah you can ask them if you can take pictures and i i must have gone to that church for two or three months (laughs) 
<laughs> and sat in the back and asked if I could take pictures, but they never let me. And there were so many, there was beautiful light in that church and beautiful moments, but I was not allowed to take pictures. So then I thought, well, okay, I need a different approach. And um, I started doing more research and reading more about the Romani people. And in the LA Times, I think there was a story about um, somebody who um, had a like a folk music store and he okay. sold Romani music. And so I went and met him and um, I called him and then we made a, a meeting and I went there and he told me, he taught me some words in Romani. And then he also took me to a Romani wedding. Oh. And it was uh, because he was, uh, he sold music to the Romani people and he knew um, a lot of the really wealthy Romani families and he, because he had known them for decades, he asked if I could come to the wedding, and they said yes, and they let me take pictures. Wow. But I asked if I could publish the pictures in my book, and they said no. Oh. So, but I took the pictures, and then I used those pictures that when Leo found another family here in Long Beach, I took those pictures with me, and I was able to show them, you know, and I knew some words, and then that family... I became friends with and they let me take pictures and there was a lady named Rachel who um she was an amazing lady very boisterous a lot of personality and she started taking me in my car we would drive to different houses and she introduced me to all her family members wow mm -hmm. and so that's so each little photo kind of got you into the next person the yes. next person the next person mm -hmm. How many photos do you think you have right there in those sleeves that you can't publish? Oh, I can publish all the ones that I have. Okay. Yeah. Oh, just that one wedding. Okay. But how beautiful is that wedding? Uh, it, you know, I didn't do a very good job. I, had, I shot in color, and that was another thing, another drawback. All the Romanies wanted color pictures, so I had to double shoot everything in color and in black and white. And people would invite me to events, and I'd be with them on the phone, and I, rem I still remember saying, hearing them in the background, bring the color film. So <laughs> so when you say that, were they also, I mean, were they using you for pictures and you're using them for access? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes, there were, they wanted pictures, and I had to give them pictures. And I spent a lot of time in the darkroom printing color pictures. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I did. A lot God of... I love you, lady. That's a lot of work doing it, color prints. Yes, and it was a lot of work. And But pretty soon, I started getting calls from people in different cities saying, would you come and shoot our wedding? But, of course, I also had to shoot it in color. <laughs> but then I would go and stay with families up there and stay in their homes, and I would go shoot the wedding and then I would send them the pictures. So it, it all worked out. Were you ever cognizant of like how much money you were spending shooting a wedding on color and on black and white and go, this might cost me too much money to do it? No, I never thought about that. Okay. No, because um, I would, but I, some, I can't remember if I would have them sometimes pay for the film I don't honestly don't remember. They would definitely pay for my plane ticket if I had to fly. Okay. 
So I would say, you know, as long as you pay for my plane ticket, I will shoot your wedding. So they, they did that. Um, what was your end game at some point? Are you thinking there's a book or how far oh, the whole time I wanted to do a book from the very beginning. And I always told people that I'm, I want to do a book on your culture. Um, I work at a newspaper, but I would never publish the pictures in a newspaper. Okay. A book is my goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was the goal all along. So for over 20 years. Well, I only shot for, I shot for like a four or five years. So, I mean, you started in 84, right? 89. Oh, oh 89. well, 84 well, right. was when I did the Portuguese. Right. Rom so Romani. You, you get hooked by this camp on the side of the road. Mm -hmm. And for years you're working on this project, not all the time, but uh -huh. here and there. And I'll, yeah. That is a long time. Yeah. To and stay I, committed. Yeah. I was, I think I was just addicted to it. If, I felt antsy if I wasn't out taking pictures of the Romani families. Really? And I was also worried that they would move. And then I would lose track of them. So I had so many families that I needed to keep track of. How did you do that? Just notes? And the children. Yeah. Yeah. I did keep, I have a journal and I would put people's addresses and their phone numbers, but they would move often and their phones would get disconnected. Mm -hmm. But the children would call me and say, this is our new phone number. They put an adult on the phone t with the new address. Were you living at a place at, that, at this time? So at least they had your address? Uh, they always had my, I don't think I ever changed my phone number. Okay. Yeah, so they always had my phone number. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I don't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I changed, I kept the same phone number all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it funny? Yeah. Yeah. Keep that landline. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the children would, would call me. And even after I stopped um, and I lost track of the families in 2003, one of the children who was now, it's about 10 years later, showed up at my house and said, Christina, this is Nick. And I said, Nick who? <laughs> and he's like, I'm Nick Richards. And I hadn't seen him since he was 10 and he was 20. And so that's why I have that extra year of photography. Um, because he came, he said, I'm married now and I have a child and I want you to come and take pictures of us. Wow. <laughs> so I have that Royal. extra one year yeah. wow. mm -hmm, of, of him. And he's in the book when he was a little kid. And then when he's 20 with his daughter, there's one, um, there's like a, you know, the two pictures are in there. Mm -hmm. And that's because he came and found me. And then I was able to photograph Rachel 10 years later. She's the, the lady who really took me everywhere. Jeez. And always stood up for me whenever people would say, no, no pictures. And she'd say, why aren't you taking pictures, Christina? And I'd say, well, because they said no. Okay, let me go talk to them. And she would, and she'd get, she'd get them to let me take pictures. How did the Leicas uh, withstand the whole project? Well, I think I only used the Leicas for a couple of years. I didn't get them until 1992, but great. They what, were. What did you shoot most of the stuff on? Nikon? Yeah. Probably a 28 um, and 35, okay. I would say. Mm -hmm. Black and white, a yeah. Tri-X? 
Or T-Max? I think mostly T-Max. Okay. T-Max, T-Max developer. 400? 400, 800, and 1600. A lot of low lighting conditions. So I would add one minute to the developing time for each push. (laughs) What, how easy would it be today if you were doing digital? Well, I have tried. I've gone back. Um, What... My one of the subjects found me on Facebook, yes, uh, in 2020, and he he said he was in the bathroom and he said he'd been trying to find me for years and he was sitting in the bathroom and his whole family heard him scream because he was trying to remember my name and he knew that my last name was similar to a country because I had told him, um. When actually, when he was a little, I took some of the little kids to the bullfights, the okay. Portuguese bullfights with me, and especially him, I thought he would enjoy that. <laughs> so I took him to the Portuguese bullfights, and I remember sitting there with them, and I said, If you ever lose track of me and just remember my name is Christina, and it's like the country Salvador. And he said, For years, he couldn't remember the country, but he finally found me on Facebook. And he said his whole family heard him scream. He was in the bathroom, and he found me, and um, he contacted me on Facebook. And so I was, in 2020, I went, I drove out to Phoenix, and I saw him, and we recreated the picture of him, which is right here. Did you see this? No, let's see. That's, his name is Jesus, or Jesus, but everybody calls him Jesus. Right. And we recreated his picture of him sitting, smoking the cigarette. It was, the first one was in Southgate. In How 90, old? He was 12. And then I think he's 32 there. Oh, no, 40. 42. What was that like covering a subject or having a subject that long? I, I mean, uh, for me, it was... It was, uh, it's so heart-wrenching that to know that I missed so much time with the, with the families that I could have been documenting them for longer, you know, had I been able to contact them, I didn't know how to contact them. And I, you know, searched for them on, um, on the internet, but I didn't know where they moved to. Right. They don't seem like the, the family to have a lot of Facebook exposure and. No. Be running around. It's a very shadows family. Yes, but Romanis, they are on on Instagram. And after... (laughs) They are? Yes. And now that he found me, I've found everybody else on Instagram. Oh, they've all just... I I know everybody in the book. Wow. Except for the ones that live out in Riverside County in the gypsy camp. I haven't been back to visit them. Wait, wait, wait. In Riverside, there's a gypsy camp? Yes. Of them? Of uh, the Ludard. Yeah. They are one of the groups um, that are descendants of the house slaves in Romania because all of these Romani people were enslaved in Romania for 500 years. Whoa. And in their emancipation, after their emancipation in the mid-1800s, then they started to spread, and that's when they came to the United States. There was one group. Um, they, it's, they're called Ludar, L-U-D-A-R, mm-hmm. and they were the house slaves in Romania 
to the boyars, and the other Romani people call them boyash, and that's where that name came from because they were the slaves to inside the homes, and they were not allowed to speak Romani, so they lost their language, and the other Roma do not consider those the boyash to be Romani, but they are. And um, there was a Romani man here, his name's Truck Driver, here in Long Beach, and that was his, all Romanis have a, a nickname, and his name, nickname was truck, truck Driver, and he's in the book, and he and I drove out to Riverside County, and he showed me where they lived. Where, and where, where is it, like, like out it, in the middle of nowhere? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Like totally off the grid? It's in Moreno Valley. Okay. Yeah, and so those people, they have their own camp, and they live in trailers, and um, so I made friends with them, too. So the unique thing about my book is that it has wow. it has four main groups, well, really five main groups of Romanese, and four of them never really interact with each other. So um, the Ludad don't interact with the other Romani people. The Horachai were new immigrants. Those are the ones from Chile, where Jesus is um, part of that family. Then there were the Mihai, who are the Colombian Roma. They interact with the Horachai, but not with really with any of the other um, Romani, American Romani people who were born here. Okay. Um, so... This is the you know this is the first photography book on Romani families and it's it will probably ever be the only one that has all four groups together because for somebody to um, be allowed in, and accepted in all the groups it is is difficult and you also have to speak Spanish. I mean maybe today somebody could do it but sure. back then you it's know difficult just mm -hmm. extremely difficult yeah. What's the oldest photo in the book? How far back does it go that you've taken? The I think 1990. Um, the very, I would probably say, uh, probably the first two images, like the little girls on the, on the um, door stoop mm -hmm. right there, on the concrete, and then um, the ones where they're dressing the little girls up, that one. I think that is probably one of the older ones. What's the most recent? The most recent, um, probably the last picture I took, is the one of Rachel right before she passed away. Okay. It's called Kiss 2. There's Kiss 1 and Kiss 2. And actually, I think that's my favorite pairing in the book. Okay. It's where the the um, one of the matriarchs is kissing the tombstone, mm -hmm. and then... Um, Rachel is kissing her great-granddaughter. When you set out to do this, and you're like, okay, I'm making a book. At that time, let's say 1990, mm -hmm. were you thinking it was going to be as easy, uh, an easy project to get the book made? Or did you think it was going to be as difficult as it's been for you? Hmm. Well, all the Romani people told me, you're never going to publish a book because nobody cares about us. Nobody's interested in us. And I think that's one of the reasons they allowed me to take pictures because they just imagined the book would never be published. Right. This is as good as it's going to get. Yeah. So 
I honestly didn't think it would be so difficult. I thought other people would be interested in the Romani culture, but honestly, people really weren't. And um, in Europe, they are. And, you know, Joseph Kudelka published his, you know, amazing book of uh, the Romani people. But um, after my, I think, around, I think I stopped contacting publishers in the mid-90s after it was published in Aperture. Okay. I just stopped because, you know, I, I did ac- actually have one publisher who, who agreed to publish the book, but they, they didn't want to do it as a photography book. They wanted to put text through it and through the images, and I didn't want that. Okay. So um, I wanted... I had been designing the book all along. Really? You? It's right. Yeah, it's right okay. there. That's the book I would take to show the Romani people. I would bring a book with me. This is how it's going to look. And and I would show it to them, and they would look through the book. And a lot of, they, they liked it. So. Was was there ever a point you just, you thought it's never going to happen? Uh, yeah, I never thought that it would happen <laughs> after I gave up. <laughs> And it wasn't until COVID and I was doing another little book for um, for some of the students that I work with. And I created a little book on um, the pandemic. And this is why we're studying at home, you know, and it was also for parents on how to help their children. And I told my friend Leo Hetzel about it. He's like, you shouldn't be doing that. Why don't you work on your on your Romany book? And I thought, you know what? He's got a good point. Now I have all this time. I can't take my kids out this summer anywhere. And usually I spend the summer with my kids. We go to the beach and, you know, I get them in classes. And that summer we couldn't, so that's what I did. I went through the negatives. And honestly, I wish I had spent a little more time because every time I look through the negatives, I find more pictures that I wish I had put in the book. So I hope the book sells out so I can add extra pictures to it. Mm-hmm. Was what's the be- what's what's the best photo you took in that book? The one you're like, that's it. That's that one's gold. Uh, well, I would say that it's the belt picture. Okay, that one right there. Yeah, because I think, and I, I maybe to a lot of people, I have watched people look through the book and they kind of just skip through that one. They don't mm-hmm. really look at it closely, but I think every picture in the book. You think they missed the loop? Yeah. And they missed the little girl's eyes because her eyes are looking up and you can see the white of her eyes and, and then the loop there, you know, the belt. Walk me through that process. What were you thinking when you're taking that and the moments happening and the discipline and all that? As you're flying a wall. Yeah, and I was literally a fly on the wall. I was sitting against, I was sitting on the ground with just holding my camera. And I honestly, I don't remember exactly what happened because it was so long ago. And honest, and I don't have those negatives anymore. I can't look through them. But um, I just remember kind of being in shock as to what was happening in front of me. And I... I just kept taking the pictures. And um, and those two little children are children that I really loved. And and they they did have a hard life. 
you know, um, one of the little girls had lost her mother and, and those are cousins and they're the same cousins who are on the front door stoop on the little step, you Mm -hmm. know, they were very close to each other, but, um, that household was a little bit chaotic. There was lots, lots of children and, um, and the thing too, about the time back then in the nineties, there was a lot more child poverty and a lot more poverty, I think, than there is now, at least according to what I've been listening to on NPR, that child poverty has really gone down compared to, you know, 30 years ago. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I'm still shocked that I, I was able to get that picture. Do you think it was a little easier, I guess, maybe for you at that point? Because you're not a mother. You're still very young. Mm-hmm. And you're looking at it from those eyes. And how would you react today as a mom? Um, yes, definitely. I probably wouldn't have taken the picture if I, now that I'm a mom, I, pro- I would have stopped whatever was happening. And so that does put me in a difficult situation now if I ever do go back and, and start taking more pictures of Romani, you know, families, which I have started. And um, I, I think the Romani families are much better off now. I remember when Obamacare was passed and I had already lost track of the Romani families, but I felt a, a sigh of relief thinking, oh, the Romani families are going to have health care now. You know, the dads are going to have health care. Nobody, only the moms and the children had health insurance, but nobody else had health insurance. Um, so I, I think in general, their situation is better. And, and, and the family atmosphere is, is better. They, they still do have a lot of suffering. Um, and I think it goes back to their history of, of persecution and slavery. Right. So, um, but would it be easier for you or more difficult? Oh, it would be more difficult. So how do you take that mom hat off and keep that photojournalism document hat on? Right. Cause your heart starts pounding and your yeah. mom, blood I mean, uh, my throat's already like, right, you know, I'm already like feeling choked up. Right. Your mom blood starts boiling. Cause it's so funny how we're different. We, mm-hmm. I am totally different pre-parent mm-hmm. to post-parent. Mm-hmm. Like, I never used to cry before I had kids. Mm. Now, like, you know, they'll say something and I'm like, oh, yeah. I melted butter. Well, you know, I really do believe in child advocacy. And I feel that children are the last group who, do, who don't have rights. And that's why I feel that this picture is so important. You know, the, <clears throat> the United States allows... Um, uh, corporal punishment um, in the homes in every single state. Um, 21, I think it's about 21 states still allow corporal punishment in the schools. And I feel that they're really, in, in Europe, it's not like that. You are, you, there's no corporal punishment allowed in, in any of the EU countries. Um, neither in the home nor in the schools. So I feel that this picture speaks for that and it um, it allows for us to have a discussion about that. And I think it can help the U.S. see what children still go through in the homes because I'm sure there are plenty of children who still suffer in this way. 
and um, and hopefully that we can get some of the laws changed. Right. But do you still take that picture today as mom? Yes, for that reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I believe in advocating for children, and yes, I would. Right. Mm-hmm. It's the hard thing. Like, I always tell people, I'd rather take a picture and never get seen mm-hmm. than never take that picture and then... Mm-hmm. What whatever came of it, nothing changed. Yeah, it's a hard hat to wear. Mm-hmm. It's tough. Yeah, like you know, today let's say your the PT still exists in the form it did in 1990, and you're still working there, and you get this assignment. What does this first photo assignment look like? Right? Mm-hmm. Leo <clears throat> says, "Oh, I got this group. Like, how do you shoot this differently today?" As a much more mature woman than that bubbly-eyed young girl mm-hmm. running around like, drop me off at the side of the road. I'm going to shoot these these people. What are they doing? Uh, I wouldn't, you know, honestly, I wouldn't change it. It's it's so ingrained in me the way that I shoot it. Um, I would still do the same thing. Were you very fly on the wall, back to the wall, kind of observe, bring your camera up, snap, wait, snap? How did you go about getting into your subject's world? Um, I couldn't really be a fly on the wall because the children, as soon as they saw me, they would all run to me and jump on me and hug me. And then the grandparents would yell at them, don't hang on the gaji, get off the gaji. <laughs> and and uh, gaji meant what? It, uh, it meant a non-Romani oh. lady. So <laughs> get off the gaji. Stop hanging on her. Stop hugging her. Yeah. But. She's got cooties and a camera. <laughs> but uh, but I, I couldn't because they were such amazing children and, you know, they were so loving. It was hard not to. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, I think I would. I was not a complete fly on the wall. Okay. Was there a photo you wish you had in the book that missed, didn't happen? Yes. What is it? Well, that was quick. <laughs> the Romani people never let me take pictures at a funeral. Oh. Because it is, it's, it's forbidden. Romani people have, and um, outsiders don't understand, they have very strict rules. They have rules about cooking. They have rules about um, the body. They have uh, a lot of superstitious rules. Um, they are not a free culture like what we expect them to be. Right. So, um, for example, the top part of your body and the bottom part of your body, like your clothes, they never get mixed. So the women's, um, the tops of your clothing don't get washed with the bottoms. Really? Yes. And the men and women's clothing don't get washed together. Who comes up with these rules? I think they are left over from India, from some of their cultural rules. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the foods, too. God, that um, makes laundry a lot more difficult. Yes. And, <laughs> and, um, and washing. They always have um, a wash pan in their sink. They don't touch any of the dishes to the sink. Um, if, uh, you know, if a fork falls on the floor, it gets thrown away. Thrown away? Yes. So... They have very, and you know, they have arranged marriages. They don't have dating. Um, they, 
they have a dowry for the the bride. So it's a very um, so traditional, in this day yeah, and age. very traditional what, culture for for a woman. Mm-hmm. Right when you started this, you were not married, no kids. Was was that world just like mind blowing to you to be like you're arranging a marriage? Your pants can't touch his pants. Uh, yes, and the the you can only men and women cannot talk to each other unless they're family members or it's a husband and wife. But you cannot talk to another man, so it's very a very segregated yeah. culture. So like literally zero communication outside of your immediate family. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and with the outside world, it's even less. Was your mind so, blown? I think the one thing that really. I had a hard time grasping was that most of the people couldn't read or write. And for me, that was very difficult to understand that they were not putting their children in school, that they didn't go to school, that most people could barely print their names. And um, that was really, that was a hard thing for me to understand. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. That is nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had, I knew in Portugal, I knew that, I remember my grandmother telling me she wasn't aler- allowed to learn how to read and write, but she did somehow. She did go to school for a while and she would read um, with a lamp. And I know there was a lot of illiteracy in Portugal too, so I wasn't so, uh, you know, I, I, Understood that there were illiterate people in the world, but I had no idea they existed here in the U.S. Yeah, the extent, these people, mm-hmm. these foreigners, mm-hmm. just trapped in this weird world. Mm-hmm. But that's their culture, that's their, you know. Mm-hmm. And it still is like that, and a lot of people didn't know their birthdays. Like my friend uh, Gladys, who I go and visit in Phoenix, um, she, they don't, she doesn't know when she was born, and... Her, she had an arranged marriage. She left Chile. They took her to Mexico when she was 15. They arranged her marriage. Her parents left back to Chile, and she never saw them again. And then somehow she crossed the border to the U.S. They got papers here where they changed their name, and um, now they have a Hispanic surname instead of a Serbian one. Mm-hmm. And um, she never saw her family ever again. Jeez. Mm-hmm. And she had eight children, and two of her children died this year. Uh, a lot of the Romani families, they died, a lot of the people die at a very young age. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like they're living in a time 150 mm-hmm. years ago. Yes. They're definitely not 2022. Mm-hmm. No. The way they live. Mm-hmm. What does photography mean to you? Uh, photography, it's it's my soul. Photography, I feel like it's it saved my life. It gave me a purpose. Um, it gave me a life. It gave me an ability to meet people because I was always a very shy and quiet person, and it it made me who I am today. Really, you think you you thought of yourself as shy? Mm-hmm. Yes, I was definitely shy in school, not in in elementary school, but um, as I got older, definitely in middle school. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I went through one whole year in middle school where I never talked. 
What, were you trying for a record? <laughs> I don't know. I just, I never Did talked. Did you not make girlfriends well? Yeah, I do remember, and even in high school, going out with some girlfriends and my friend later telling me, you need to start talking. You were you, that wall, uh, was mm -hmm. it wallpaper, flower, just kind of right in the room? Yeah. Yes, I was. And, you know, in a way, that was that was good because that gave me those skills I needed to be a documentary photographer. That's true. That's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The yapper doesn't do well trying to do a documentary. No, the yapper misses pictures. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it definitely brought me out of my shell, and it it gave me better social skills. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, my parents got divorced when I was 15, so when my mom moved to New York and my dad stayed in St. Louis, I didn't have really anywhere to live. So if I wasn't a photojournalist, I mean, that was part of my drive was to, you know, survive and have a place to live. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so it definitely... I have this book right here. It says your art will save your life and your art will save your life. Right. If your life needs to be saved. Yeah. If it needs to be <laughs> saved. Let's crack open the book okay. real quick. Let's take a look. Well, show me like, so what was the process? Like how, how, how grueling was this? Was this like giving birth? You've done that a couple of times. Like, <laughs> right. So, I mean, like a book like this is, is it, did you think it was going to be as difficult as it was when you started a couple of years ago? The actual the yeah, making the process. book. Yes, um, the layout, the design, the text, the printing, make sure it's right. Like, there's so many things that can. Yeah, well, I you know I had originally designed the book um, along, you know, back like in 1996. Okay. So I had originally 63 pictures. And then I started going through more pictures and because I felt like maybe the book was a little bit too dark and okay. I wanted to add photos that also showed, you know, the brightness of Romani of, yeah, life. Yeah, right. So th that's a, sometimes what we easily start to do is try to always, not always, but show the, 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 the difficult struggle. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, good God, I'm, everybody's just miserable. Yes, and, that, and that's not who they are. No. It's just kind of, we kind of get drawn to yes, it. Yes, because those pictures have a lot of impact. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. So I wanted to make the book more well-rounded. And so I started to go through my film. And um, and then I started printing pictures. I scanned them first. on my. I had to buy a film scanner. First of all, I had none of the, the tools that I needed. <laughs> <laughs> so I bought a film scanner. So your skill set got a little better building. Oh this my book. gosh! I yes, definitely. So now new tools in the tool belt. Anyone for you. who needs help with a book, I can help them. <laughs> yes, and um, Christina makes books dot com. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, I I started printing in the dark room. The city made me tear down the dark room that was in the garage when we moved our washer and dryer out to the garage from the house. So I no longer had a dark room. The city make you? Yes, they did. Bastards. Because you have to have a, a two-car garage. And the dark room took... Up. You have to in, in Long Beach? Or mm -hmm. in the design of the... Yes, for this one. Huh. Yeah. The city. Yeah. So I had to tear down my dark room. So... The only way for me to print was to use the bathroom. Oh, and boy. it's our only bathroom. 
<laughs> the kids must love you. Uh, the kids actually were kind of fascinated by, you know, I let them print too. So how did you do it? Typical sink, lay out a table. I put stop, a bath. table in the bathtub, and I brought my enlarger from the garage, um, and then I put the trays on our bathroom counter. Yeah, and then I washed the prints in the shower. Sure. Yeah. Right. That's normal for people who don't understand. <laughs> God. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I had all my trays and everything. So, yeah, I ordered most of the stuff from Amazon or either I went to Terry's camera. Uh, not Terry's wow. camera. Um, what's it called? Your Tuttle. Yeah. Tuttle camera. Yeah. And I, I got supplies there. But... It took a little while to get back into printing. You know, I started to notice everything was drying dark. and But that's okay because when you scan it, you can lighten it. So mm-hmm. that was not so bad. Um, the writing was very difficult. I had to do a lot of research. I couldn't, I couldn't remember a lot of what happened, and I had to go through my journals. And that's, then I was... Thank God you kept them. Yes. I had three years of journals. Um I contacted a lot of the Romani families now that I was back in touch with them. And they helped me remember things, too, because the children remembered things that I didn't. Okay. And um, and then they also helped me with some of the traditions that I get mixed up. So. Uh, Why the shape? Why this shape book? Instead of a square or, or a bigger, smaller? I, I don't. Okay, so I don't like square books for some reason. Okay. I don't know why. I just don't. Um, I wanted the book to be bigger. Okay. Uh, I I looked at Joseph Kudelka's book, mm-hmm. and I wanted mine. I love how big mm-hmm. his photos are, but I also wanted there to be a lot of white space around them. Okay. But I used this size because it was more cost effective. Okay. Because it, it fit the page perfectly, and so I was able to get a discount with the printer. Oh. Okay. God yeah. love them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I designed, I paired the pictures with my friend Beatrice DeJea. She helped me. But a lot of the pictures had been paired a long time ago. But okay. she helped me with, you know, with um, the sequencing. And um, Was that a lot of work for you? It was. I had the pictures um, on this table for months and after a while, I just kind of got lost. I really wanted it to be an introduction to the Romani people, and then I wanted it to be um, from birth to death. Okay. But by doing that, I left a lot of the good pictures out to the to the end, and I didn't. And and so that didn't flow. So Beatrice helped me with that, um, having some of the more dramatic pictures at the front. Right. Was it hard doing the work at home? Or if you didn't, you, if you had an office, you know, you could separate like, oh, I'm done with, you know, doing the dishes. Mm-hmm. I'll go take a look at the book where if you're in an office, you can put things up on the wall. You can look at it. You don't have to worry about the kids or the dogs yeah. get on stuff. And you had your space for the project. It would have been easier. Yes. If I had space, not necessarily in an office, but if I had more space because um, I, I didn't. I had this table here, and I set out the little miniature um, pictures that I had, but having to set up the dark room right. over and over every time I wanted to use it, that was difficult. Um, and yes, if I could have hung the pictures up and looked at them, 
that would have been a lot easier. So I recommend having your own your own space, like right. what you said. Yeah. But I enjoyed having them at home because I could wake up in the middle of the night if I had an idea, <laughs> and I could move things around. So, yeah, there's nothing like waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning with your idea of your project. Yes. Like, let's do this, let's do that. Yes. Yeah. Where could people find the book? Uh, you could find it at independent bookstores, um, in Barnes & Noble, um, Amazon. Um, you can find it on the publisher's website or also on mine, which is AmericanRoma.com. And... Um, that's the fastest shipping I think would be through me because okay. I have the books right here in my home and I can just ship it out the next day. <laughs> what now? Why the title hidden? Actually, we really struggled with the title. Um, we the people because the Romani people really are they're hidden among us. Uh, they're hard to find. It was difficult for me to find the Romani people. And um, I think actually the the title was the publisher's idea. We brainstormed for months and we were getting to the deadline of, okay, we need a title. And I think hidden, it just fit perfectly because the Romani people, they are, they're, they're hidden among us. Yeah. I mean, when I looked at the pictures and stuff, they could be, they could be from Latin America looking, they can kind of look like maybe Eastern European. They don't mm-hmm. have a distinct like, oh, you're mm-hmm. African American. Mm-hmm. I got you. Yeah, right. They're they're a little bit of a kind of this kind of that, so mm-hmm. they can blend into a town. Yes, and they often will tell other. They will tell outsiders that they are um, Romanian or. Right. Um, you know they they will they'll keep it Turkish simple. right yeah, yeah. Armenian yeah. They yeah. will, because they really are from, from all of those areas, mm-hmm. you know, and they're a blend of, they have picked up cultural ideas and cultural traditions from other countries and, um, such as kissing the tombstone. I think Wally told me that the only time he's ever seen that was in Serbia and the peop- the lady who, um, is kissing the tombstone, her family is from Serbia. Okay. So they, you know, they have a lot of traditions that are from Eastern Europe. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they've, those things kind of follow along mm-hmm. to the cultures. Yeah. Would you do it over again? Definitely. What it, would you, what would you do different? Cause it's like giving birth. This is your, you know, it's my grandchild. Yeah, it's your <laughs> grandchild. Um, you mean taking the pictures over again? Yeah, or the whole, whole the process. Of course. You know, it was always my life dream to publish a book. And I have so many books here on inside this little cabinet, one from each city. So I've been practicing along the way. And um, I definitely want to sell out this edition so that I can go through my negatives and find other pictures and replace some of the pictures in the book. And uh, I would love to follow the Romani people. I've already started it's very difficult because they live out of state. So, you know, I have to drive seven hours to Phoenix (laughs) and I've done that twice. And, um, and also they are on their own time schedule. So I have made appointments here in the LA area to go and photograph 
some of the families, but things always happen at the last minute and they'll have to go and see a sick relative or they have something, uh, something yes. always you know, with large families. And I understand now being a parent, you, your priorities are not the photographer who wants to take your picture. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's your family. So yeah. Well, when you started this, you were a young girl and you could be like, Oh, I could be there at any time of the day. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now you're like, I've got commitments too. Yes. Yeah. So it's more, it's <laughs> a lot more difficult. School. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Yeah. So are you happy with it? Yeah. I'm really happy with how it turned out. Yeah. That's good. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the end, that's what you want. Yeah. You want a good product. You want people to be mm-hmm. exposed to this, you know, beautiful culture, mm-hmm. enlightened people. And it is such an undertaking. Mm-hmm. God love you for doing it. I mean, yeah. did you think it was going to be as big as it undertaking as it was? I mean, no, um, I really, I knew the writing was really difficult. Yeah. And um, the, the professor public- was right. Writing yeah. is a pair. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, um, the publisher, she really helped me with the writing. I knew that I wanted to have a history of the Romani people in the book because I wanted people to understand what they have been through throughout history. And I wanted to talk about the different nations and where they came from. Uh, and I wanted to have a little bit of my story, how I found them. And, um, and that so photo we- of you with the camera is adorable. <laughs> that's how I remember you. Like, right? Uh, that's when I first met you. Uh-huh. That's who you were. This big blue eye, great <laughs> smile, you know, youthfully, yeah, yeah right, right the youthfully photographer, right? Running around yeah. just like, I'll shoot anything. <laughs> I'll repel off a building. I'll climb up a battleship. Yeah, and I probably still would, but I do have my husband to remind me. <laughs> <laughs> the back, don't, don't don't hurt the back. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I think there's just something about photojournalists that make us different from everybody else. and Yeah, we talked about that before we hit record. Like, yeah. We're a different breed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think um, when I was about 14, we went, my family, my, you know, my mom and dad and my brother and sister went to Paris and we went to a museum and they had the pictures of the Holocaust. And I remember being the only person in my family who could look at those pictures and I think that was a turning point for me because I realized that if there hadn't been anyone there to take those pictures, there would be no proof that the Holocaust, well, there would be stories that the Holocaust existed, but there wouldn't be any visual documentation. Right. And so in doing this project, I always kept that in mind that, you know, whatever, there, there needs to be documentation of the Romani people and especially at that time, I, I felt like I was an anthropologist documenting a culture. And mm-hmm. I was so fascinated and I felt so privileged to have that opportunity to do that. And it's, it's so, photography is so important because it, it, it preserves history and it reminds us of, of, what, of how society changes and, you know, it documents that. So, Did photography change you? And I, I wouldn't be who I am without photography because photography and, and me were the same thing. I, it's hard to explain, but photography is really who I am. It's like who I am as my soul, who I really am is in the pictures. And I don't know if that makes sense, but 
what you see, like just my outside, that's not really who I am. I think I'm a much deeper person than what I project. And I think you can only see that through my images. Yeah, well, they're beautiful. Oh, thank you. They're, it's a beautiful book. Um, I'm glad I'm going to have one. It's, you know, it's a beautiful lifelong project that you've done and put together. And, you know, how many times has projects like this been placed in front of somebody and they didn't follow through? Mm-hmm. They just saw somebody, well, maybe I'll reach back out to him later. Yeah. But something drew you in, young lady, and mm-hmm. you're like, I'm hooked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I then, love this culture. Let yeah. me know more. Yeah, and I really did fall in love with the people because they are they're amazing, resilient people. They have an amazing sense of humor. Uh, they're so strong. And the child, and I, what I loved is that they included the children in all aspects of their life. And I think, you know, what if we did that today? If everywhere you went, it was okay to take your children. You go to a wedding, it's assumed that your children are going. You bring mm-hmm. the playpen. The children will feel so much more included in in life. And, and they are part of the culture. And they don't have to stay home with the babysitter. Right. And the Romani people taught me that. And so I, I always brought my kids everywhere. My kids went to work with me. I'd bring chairs for them. If I had a photo shoot, I'd bring stuff for them to do, and they'd sit in the chairs, and I'd give them their own little cameras, and I learned that from the Romani people, and I think that part of the failings of our culture now is that um, children and, and young adults experience a lot of loneliness, and that's from not being included in, in everything. And um, the Romani people include their children as part of their culture, wherever they go. And the children learn from a young age how to self-advocate, um, how to negotiate, how to have their own voice, how to speak up for themselves. So, right. No, it's big. It's mm-hmm. big. Yeah. Especially having your kids around. It makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it exposes them to some wonderful things. Yeah. And keeping them just put off to the side and not, you know, with a babysitter and missing out on events or family Mm -hmm. things, um, it doesn't do them any good. No. And they miss on uh, opportunities to to grow socially and and to learn. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How has this book changed the way you want to approach maybe like another project? If something else comes up for like this for you, how are you going to be like, mm, I, I'm going to, I could do this again. Like, would you add more? Like you're, you're saying you're, you're going to Arizona possibly. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at the photos, are you looking at them differently to add to this, to this book or is your style kind of still the same and you're going to kind of follow that same approach? I, I think my style is still the same. You know, I've, I have had, two opportunities and I've gone to Arizona and I've lived with two families. Um, I spent five days with one family in Phoenix. And um, I think one of the different things that I've, I've been bringing lighting with me because yeah, I've been lighting the situations um, because one of uh, that was one of the issues I had before is if I shot a wedding, I, I didn't have a lot of lighting and I didn't want to be um, intrusive, but now it doesn't matter if I'm intrusive because 
they already know me and they, they already know what I'm go- going to do. Right. Um, so, no, I think my approach is the same. I just bring more lighting. Um, there's so many more issues going on with the Romani people that I would like to cover. A lot of health issues, um, a lot of um, drug overdoses. These are really like sensitive topics and that yeah. they want to, um, they do keep these things hidden. Of course, they tell me about it. I don't know if they want the world to know about that. So um, I would, that is something that I would like to document. I don't know whether or not I will get to. But I think that um, these are things that are facing a lot of minority cultures right now and also with the pandemic. Right. So. um, Have you ever thought of shooting this as a documentary on like video? Making a video? No. No. Uh, you just want to keep it still. I well, I have interviewed some people and done some like little videos, but right. as far there is a really good documentary on American Roma that's on Prime, and it's okay. called um, I think it's called American Gypsy. Okay, and I think they did a really good job. Um, I can see some of the things are set up, but they have um, focused on a lot of the issues that I. I saw and a lot of um uh the traditions too that are in you know in my book and they cover that so I really don't want to I like having photos that I can hang on the wall right and I like to be able to look at them when you a video you can watch it once in a while but it's it's not always with you right so do you guys have a um an Instagram for the book, or, or do you have uh, photos that you show on Instagram? Uh, no, I just have my own Instagram. What is and it? I think it's Christina Cleanse. Okay. Uh, we'll make sure we put a link in so people can. Oh, okay, mostly, follow. yeah, and I have it on Facebook. Okay. Um, mostly, my Instagram friends are all Romanies. <laughs> and. Uh, that's really who, the, and because they want to see their pictures, so I. I've had so many people contacting me. Do you have a picture of so-and-so, my aunt, my grandmother, me when I was a child? I don't have any pictures of myself. So I've been scanning and I've been posting it, posting pictures on there so that they can have access to seeing their relatives um, and their family members. You're like this connection to this community that I Mm -hmm. bet you had no idea what you would become. No, I didn't know that I would have this historical ar- archive of their family members. And there are people who have never seen, who don't know what they look like as children. Because right. they have no pictures. And even though I gave everybody pictures, um, I think they, with all the moving, they've gotten lost. There are some families who kept the pictures, but most of the families lost the pictures. Wow. I am so thankful we were able to spend this time together and talk. This is way better than a track meet at Long Beach. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that you took the time to come out here and um, and interview me. And Well, it wasn't know. a seven-hour drive, so it's not bad. <laughs> a county away. No, this has That's been great. True. I'm so happy you did this. Like, I think, I think more photographers need to make books and mm-hmm. do projects like this, photojournalists, because... Mm-hmm. Um, it's a big soul cleanser. It's a, yeah. it's a major undertaking, but mm-hmm. 
it's it's a beautiful thing to have photo books. Yeah, and I think of um, so many photojournalists who are out there who do have who could publish their archives because their archives are historical. Right. And it's really you can do it. It's not that difficult, you know, because it's your passion and it, it it's a lot of fun. It's hard work, but um, I think that. It's really not that expensive. You know, you can have a hybrid publisher and the publisher can pay for part of it and you can pay for part or you can pay for all of it yourself. Right. But, um, and you, you know, I got to go to Italy. I chose the printer um, and I got to watch the whole thing happen. Right. So, Well, I bet if I, uh, if I talked to the men in your life and I asked about the bathroom, being occupied by a dark room, <laughs> they might disagree with something. Yes, they didn't. They did not like the smell. No, no. <laughs> you were you were bred on that uh, fixer and yes. stop bath. Yeah, they, yeah. They were like, oh, mom, this is the worst. Yeah, and I ruined our granite countertops oh. too with the, <laughs> with the fixer. Ah, fixer is the it's, worst. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So it's okay. <laughs> thank you for thank you for taking the time to do this. Oh, thank you. This has been awesome. You got a beautiful book and a beautiful family and two dogs that are ready to come back in here and yes. see me. <laughs> thank you so much, Matt. You're the best. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Christina. If you enjoyed the episode, please click the like button, become a subscriber to the podcast, and remember you can follow the Just a Good Conversation podcast on Instagram. You can find all of our past shows on the website at justagoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening.